Hi there, it's Jesse here. Uh, you are probably thinking, what, another podcast? Don't you have like three million podcasts? Well, yes, I am a podcast producer, and I'm really, really excited about this new podcast I'm producing called Killed by Desk. So what it's about is a couple of friends of mine who I always thought were some of the funniest people, one Bill Forio, who's been with Maximum Rock and Roll, and he was part of the Chris Gethard show, decided to make this podcast where they would talk to people who were in popular punk bands and metal bands and hardcore bands, ska bands, whatever, about what they do post-music and what their careers are like and what punk brought to those careers. And I was like, this is an amazing idea. So I jumped on board, decided to produce it. And I want people to hear it because I'm putting a lot of effort into it. So what you can do to hear it is you can get subscribed at killedbydesk.com. We have links for everywhere you can get subscribed to it. Or you can just enter it into your favorite podcast app or on all those podcasts. But right now what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you the trailer. And I'm going to play you a bunch of the first episode. So have fun. Enjoy this. And I hope you get subscribed and check out Killed by Desk. We have insanely amazing guests. The first one is Justin Brandon, which is going to play right after the trailer. Justin was an indecision of Most Precious Blood, and now he's a city councilman who represents a whole big neighborhood in New York. Then we talked to Chris Gethard, who is famous for the Chris Gethard show and career suicide in the second episode. And then we talked to all these people who were in crazy bands, and then now are things like priests in a Unitarian church or cartoonists and all sorts of different things, all making their way through life post-punk. So please, get subscribed to this and check it out. Well, I hate my fucking job! Well, I hate my fucking job! Oh. Hi, and welcome to Killed by Desk. I'm Bill Florio. I'm Dave Harrison. And this is MC Charlie Boswell. Welcome to the only punk podcast trending on LinkedIn that looks to find out if that kid standing on stage with that stupid black flag tattoo missing one bar is a biotech millionaire, in jail, or possibly both. We interview the people who created zines, toured the world, put out records, and ran the shows that changed your life. But this adds nothing to a resume, or does it? If you ask boring people about their day jobs, you get boring answers. Ask the punks, freaks, the whack jobs, who made your favorite records and zines, and you'll get, well... You'll see. Have you ever wondered what those weirdos are doing when they're not losing money playing guitar? Are they painting houses, pushing pencils, or running corporations? Are they the reason why that Buzzcock song is playing in an AARP commercial? So hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tune in every week to hear another interview with someone you somewhat respected for their art telling you how they make ends meet. Hey there, all you ninnies, twits, dingbats, and social reprobates. This is Reverend Orr welcoming you to another electrifying, stimulating, and totally off-the-wall sensational episode of Killed by Desk. The only show that answers the question that no one's asking, what do those misfit musicians, weirdo artists, and oddball scenester mainstays do to make a living? Prepare to have your minds completely and totally blown for the details you never thought you'd want to know. The ups, the downs, the conference calls gone wrong, the co-worker questions, the dress codes, and what they've learned and what they wish they hadn't, and if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become. From selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here's your host, Bill Florio. Hey, this is Bill Florio. How's it going? Yo, this is MC Charlie Boswell. <laughs> hey, it's Dave Harrison. What's up? 
Hi, I'm Jesse Cannon, and I produce this podcast. All right, our microphones work. This is great. <laughs> hey, before we get started, I just want to talk about how this all came to be, because Jesse, our producer, told me I should do a podcast six years ago at Dave's wedding, right? Dave wasn't there, because he was like... He wasn't at his own wedding? He wasn't there in the conversation. I got there eventually. Because it was his wedding, but he was like, Bill, you should do a podcast. And I'm like, okay, what's that? So six years later, I was like, I think I have an idea for a podcast. Basically, what I was thinking is I know lots of interesting people and I met them through the punk scene and they do interesting things in their daily life, but they never talk about that. We always talk about like what record they bought. So I just felt like some of these conversations had some of these kind of like interesting observations on life. It just seemed like it was worth someone else might want to listen to it. I was texting Dave about it and I'm like, Dave, what do you think about this? And he's like, I like this. I have to say when you first reached out to me, I was like, no one wants to hear what these people have to say at all. (laughs) I was completely convinced that this is like, think about your favorite artists and you think about even just looking back and cringing at the lyrics for some of these songs, you know, and you're like, I, do I want to hear this person talk about their daily life or, you know, is it going to be super depressing because they're all going to talk about how miserable their lives turned out as they weren't able to stay kids forever. So, you know, it was definitely one of those things where when you first brought it up, I was like, I don't know if I want to do that, but I really want to do a podcast with Bill. So I was like, you know what, let me see if I can make this work. And then I seriously, no joke, went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night, probably about like 2.33 o'clock. And I was like, no, you know what? Actually, this idea is really good because it doesn't have to just be depressing. Some of them may be depressing. Some of them are going to be awesome. And some of them are going to be that thing that maybe you needed when you were a kid and you were trying to figure out where the hell you were going in life or what you were going to do when you grew up. And it ended up being something that was truly inspiring. So whether this was something for people who haven't entered the job market yet or still like entrenched in that punk scene or whatever you want to call it to people who maybe you're walking around in a suit and tie and still feeling like they're punk rock, but look completely different when they look in the mirror. I mean, that was, I was like, there's so many places this can go. And I think I texted you back that morning. And the great thing about Bill is you can text him at any time of day and I'm pretty sure that he's awake. And I think we just, we jumped <laughs> on the call. That's the opposite and, of what it used to be. I used to drink a lot more Pepsi. <laughs> this guy slept through New Year's. <laughs> and so I think we started talking about it and obviously it was, you brought up Charlie and I immediately was like, that is exactly what we need. Yeah. I, and, and Charlie, you're the first person I knew who had a real job. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pathetic. (laughs) I mean, like when I was 18, not now. (laughs) Yeah, well, you asked me when I was laying in the hospital bed. You texted me, said, do I want to do a podcast? So I figured I'd just say yes, because who the hell knows what's going to (laughs) happen. I figured it was the safest bet at that time. (laughs) You know, it's one of those things. You know, if I get out of here, I'll do this podcast, I swear. (laughs) Well, that's where we're at. So first episode is Justin Brannon. Justin was in... Indecision and Most Precious Blood were two kind of like metal core, straight edge type bands from New York. What do you guys think about how this went? I think it was great. Justin was one of those people that I think when we first started talking about the people we'd want to talk to, Justin was one of the first ones that came up because we were like, this guy that we all knew some better than others, but we all kind of knew him well enough, even if it was just from saying hi in the scene, who literally became a politician. And we were just like, this is such a crazy leap. I think we've all made jokes about how we all have too many skeletons in our closets to to do it and he does too but he somehow managed to do it and is incredibly successful at it i really did enjoy the conversation my first thought was this is our first guest that's pathetic <laughs> <laughs> charlie you, you actually ran into justin at the saint patrick's day parade right yeah well i, I ran into him when we were, we were both marching with the city council delegation in the saint patrick's day parade so I was able to harass him <laughs> he texted me he was terrified <laughs> terrified <laughs> 
What did he think I was? He thought I was the IRA or something? Yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, someone came up to me and they whispered something about my past in my ear and I got really scared. <laughs> did you try and blackmail him, Charlie? No, I just mentioned Artie Philly. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, with that, let's play the tape. All right, cool. So, Justin, just to start us off, just introduce yourself and explain like what you do for a living to someone who has no idea that that's a real job. <laughs> sure. My name is Justin Brannon, and I'm a New York City Council person. I'm one of 51 city council members who represent the five boroughs of New York City in the New York City Council. New York City Council is a co-equal branch of government we serve, the 51 of us serve as a check on the executive branch, which is run by the mayor. Cool. So did you always have some sort of path to politics? Did this just come out of nowhere? Like, you know, is this something always in your mind? I used to make fun of people who voted. I didn't understand why it mattered. <laughs> <laughs> no, not in a million years. But it was because politics to me was really sort of something that I couldn't relate to before I knew about sort of local politics, right? Like, you know, when the rent is due on the first and you got to buy groceries and you got to try to have money left over to pay your bills and stuff, like who the president is doesn't really have an immediate impact on your life. I think these days it's certainly different. But when I was growing up, I mean, to me, that was politics. It was a bunch of old white guys with white hair on television in suits arguing about stuff that didn't affect my life. So it wasn't until years and years later that I learned about local politics and sort of where the rubber meets the road. And that's when I started getting more interested in it. And I'm still more interested in the local stuff than I am in the national stuff. I mean, obviously these days it's all None of this stuff happens in a silo. But no, it was never, never in a million years would I have thought that I would end up as an elected official. I was invited to the Democratic Convention when I was 13. Oh, Did wow. you go? No. I was asked to be a runner, like a page for Jimmy Carter, by Jimmy Carter campaign. I feel like there's an alternate reality story where you did go and like something went horribly wrong. <laughs> something yeah, went horribly right. <laughs> like a back, like a back to the future kind of thing. <laughs> it's like the movie Dead Zone. <laughs> I, I actually i actually made a conscious decision not to go but i did work i did work for jimmy carter's campaign in that primary in 1980 so that was his re-election campaign that he lost yes but yeah he, he well he he, lo he won the nomination mm -hmm. but he did lose he did lose the new york i think primary it's hard to lose won. the nomination when you're when you're the incumbent right jimmy, jimmy carter came <laughs> <first>. <laughs> i believe me Believe me, if you've seen the people who ran his New York campaign, <laughs> you know why. Well, I mean, are some of those people the same people you have to deal with, Justin? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 a crazy it's a crazy place. I mean, there's people who are certainly involved, you know, in politics for the right reasons, and people who are involved for the wrong reasons. You know, there's a lot of snakes and fakes, and you know, a lot of people who. I mean, I think now it's gotten better because. People are, are more open to candidates that are a little bit rougher around the edges. I think for a long, and this is this is fairly new. I'd say over the past five years, maybe it's gotten to be okay if you're an elected official that didn't come from, you know, the sort of the tried and true routes, right? Of, you know, joining all the right clubs and going to the right schools and being part of the right fraternity and all that bullshit. Like, like I was never the kid who, when he was eight years old, was running around with a bow tie and saying, I'm going to be president someday. Like that, that, 
that's that wasn't me, right? But but there's a lot of people who ran around saying they were when they were seven years old saying they were going to be president who ended up getting into politics and it was a very methodical, calculated path that they took to get. I think you're starting to see that the average, you know, there's always a, it's always a thing about who which candidate would you rather have a beer with that kind of thing. That was about as as real as it got. Right now, it's gotten much more real where I think people are really looking for candidates that they can relate to, but really not only that candidates that can empathize with what their voters, their constituents are going through, but candidates that have actually gone through the same things that their voters have gone through. And I think in a way, it's a lot like hardcore, right? I mean, you know, what was so cool about hardcore was that, you know, you're, st- you're standing at, at CB's in the crowd and next thing you know, the guy that was standing next to you is now on stage playing in the next band. So like politics is kind of hopefully heading more in that direction where our elected officials aren't, you know, these supernatural beings that we think are just hatched from eggs, but they're real people with real experiences. And I think that's a good thing because really, you know, you've seen a lot of the, you know, when you hear about politicians who get caught because they've got four secret families and stuff like this, they're usually the politicians who are the most, you know, at least on the outside, externally clean cut by the book and that kind of thing. So I think there's been a real reaction for some people that they, you know, they want to be represented by people that they can relate to, but by people who have gone through the same things that they've gone. And I think that's really getting back to, you know, of the people, for the people, by the people, like that's what that's all about. Do you still feel like there's a lot of work to be done for people to, especially understand local politics? Because I feel like as a city councilman person, like that's, you're the guy that the kids in the elementary school write a letter to, but they, as they grow up, they may not know what you do or, or what you're responsible for. How do you battle that? It seems to me like there might be an education gap there as well with the public. Sure. I mean, there's a huge, I think overall people are lacking in their civic education and how, and how all this stuff works. But it's also the time that we're living in, right? So I'm a city council person. I have no jurisdiction over the Middle East or immigration reform or any of this 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 big ticket stuff, right? That doesn't mean that people don't want to know where I stand on Palestine or where I stand on immigration reform and, and, and these national issues because of the moment that we're in. I think that there was a time when someone could walk into your office and if you were at the city level or the state level or whatever it is, you could have said, sorry, miss, I don't. that's not my jurisdiction. Go see Senator so-and-so down the street. But we don't do that anymore, right? If you walk into our office, we're going to help you. And that really is you know, a sign of the times because of where we're at in this country and that everyone is just trying to do everything that they can for people because of what's going on right now. But there's definitely there's definitely confusion as to who's in charge of what. And a lot of that is because of just, you know, the bureaucracy that frankly, me as an elected official, I'm still figuring out who's in control of what. So, you know, for the guy down the street to know that, you know, I'm in charge of the potholes, but the senator is technically in charge of the subway, that's not a normal education, normal understanding. So I think for me, like one of the things I like to do is pull back the curtain a little bit and try to demystify government. And so people can understand how all this stuff works. And I think that that's also indicative sort of of the newer crop of elected officials who want to empower their constituents and the voters more, right? I think the old school guys 
they want they want to just be seen as the hero, right? They can fix everything. They're going to take care of it. Don't worry about how it gets done. I'm going to take care of it. And that's how they build power because people have to rely on you for this stuff. So I think for, for some of the newer elected officials, part of empowering people is through the, the education process and, and explaining to people how this stuff works and explaining who's in charge of what and how to get stuff done. But it's also just being real with people. You know, like, look, right now I'm, I'm in the in the process of, of repaving like a three mile bike path that runs like almost the whole length of my district. And I'm telling people, look, I allocated the money a year ago. This is how much it cost. This is how long it's going to take that, you know, I try to really break it down for folks so they understand if they're interested in understanding how all this stuff works, just because I think it's I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful if people understand the challenges and the obstacles and, and the pitfalls and stuff, just so they have a better understanding of how these things work, you know? I mean, look, and voters have gotten much smarter and they're way more in tune where if I go around with the big game show check and I say I'm allocating $10,000 to the St. Joseph's Little League, people are going to say, well, that's not your $10,000. You didn't take that money out of your checking account. That's our tax dollars that you're allocating. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's what we're doing. Like, I want people to know that because I want them to know that this is how that system works. So I think certain elected officials want to empower their constituents and their voters to understand how this stuff works. And some of the old school guys, they don't want that because they, they're afraid that by demystifying the process, then you're somehow ceding power to the people, which is just a very sort of old arcane way of thinking. When you talk about people coming into your office with like, you know, issues like that, isn't like 90% of the people come into your office with like, there's a park car in front of my house or my neighbor's doing this or they just plain nuts? Absolutely. I mean, I like I'll give you, for instance, right. I ran for office about a year after Trump was elected was when I started knocking on doors, 2017. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to talk. I'm going to have to really beef up on a lot of this stuff. You know, I'm going to have to really learn my stuff with immigration reform, the Muslim ban, you know, all these really, really controversial, critical issues. And the average person, when I knock on their door, they're asking me about the pothole on their corner. They want to know what high school. I went to, you know, they want to know these really parochial local things that gives them sort of some insight into who you are and and your roots. And, and, you know, I guess you're sort of your moral compass, you know, and that, and they sort of are able to, you know, I think they try to understand that based on, you know, who you are, where you went to school, that kind of, you know, you're introducing yourself to these folks for the first time. They weren't interested in talking about what they're hearing on MSNBC or on Fox news. They want to talk about their immediate reality, their walk to work, you know, they walk down the steps of their apartment, they walk to the corner, they make a left, they get a coffee at the bodega, they go, you know, that's their whole reality. They take their kid to school, you know, the curb is broken, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's why I fell in love with local politics, because that's the stuff that I can really dive into. And that's the the stuff that I can fix. Whereas sort of the the national stuff almost, you know, when it, when juxtaposed with, with the local stuff, you know, it almost becomes like ethereal, you know, it's like this very very sort of, you know, um, pie in the sky kind of highfalutin stuff. Whereas I'm talking about your street light is out, your garbage didn't get picked up, your neighbor next door is blocking your driveway, like that kind of stuff that affects people's immediate reality. And that's why I love this job. Like, that's why I, I think local politics is what I was really built for, because I love that day to day stuff. But I think the average person, you know, that's really, that's what they care about, their immediate reality. And then I think they dive into the bigger ticket stuff. 
it sounds a lot less partisan too. I mean, it's much more tactical or it's the things that, that they're staring at every day versus they may like you, even if they are voting Republican down the line, they may say, well, he did something for me. I don't care if he's a Democrat. This is, you know, he's doing things for my neighborhood. And that might be something that grows into a larger understanding beyond partisan politics, even when you get to the national level because of their interactions with you on that local level. Well, I mean, you hope so, right? I mean, the the world that we're living in right now is so tribal and so polarized that people have a way of making anything partisan. You know, I think we are currently living in a really an all or nothing reality where nuance is basically dead. And I think that there are there are people that only care about that sort of, well, he helped me with this, she helped me with that. But there are other people that even with that, because of the current climate that we're in, which is so polarized and so tribal, that some people can't see past that right now. For instance, I mean, my predecessor, I remember people coming up to him and saying, you know, Vinny, you're the only Democrat I vote for, right? And now... Uh, with Trump, you're more likely to hear people say, Justin, I think you're great, but you're a Democrat. And it's like, well, what the fuck does that matter? Like I helped you with, you know, I helped you get a tree cut down in front of your house. There's no Democrat or Republican way to pick up the garbage. Like you just get it done. Why does that matter? But because of everything going on nationally, it's it's harder and harder for people to see past that. You know, I mean, we'll see what happens in November if, if things change, if hopefully some of that can subside and we can get back to reality. But where we are now is very, very, very polarized, where even with doing as much of that sort of apolitical constituent service stuff, some people still have trouble seeing past that. Yeah, it's a sh- and it's a shame. It's a shame. I, I, I argue that you're talking about a small percentage of the people that are making that argument and thinking about it. But I think that the top of the ticket is really what's key. If I look at a certain area and you say, this area is going to vote this way on the top of the ticket, it's going to go right down the line only a little bit. There's very few votes that are going to change down on the bottom, no matter what you did. You're only dealing. Yeah, I mean, look, my district is somewhat a microcosm of middle America. You know, we're still we're one of the only areas left in the city of New York that still can have competitive general election. Most places in the city. I'd say 95% of the districts, if you're a Democrat and you win your primary, you're done. It's over. You might have, you know, who's the team that plays the Harlem Globetrotters, the Washington Generals? Like, you might have someone run against you in in November as a Republican, but you're going to win. Whereas where I am, the general elections are still very competitive. And they've been that way for a while. I mean, you know, there's definitely the numbers are trending in favor of the Democrats, you know, just as, you know, the rest of the city. But there's still you know, there's still very much competitive general election. So you have this dynamic where, you know, people are split down the middle on stuff. You said before that, you know, the relatability to, you know, your community is a lot like hardcore. How do you explain chain of strength? (laughs) I didn't feel relatable at all to those guys. They had like frosted tips and expensive sneakers. You wore camo shorts. No, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think, I mean, the same way that that kids who uh, all ran out and bought Queens College hoodies because they liked the way that, you know, Youth of Today was dressing. You know, it's that same kind of like emulation. Like, you you know, they want to see people that that look like them or act like them and stuff. And look, I think in politics, it's a good thing because I think you can only be let down when you you hold politicians on these completely unattainable pedestals like they are not human beings. You can only be let down if that's the case. What moment did you decide that 
this was for you and this made sense. I remember like 10 years ago, you were texting me because you, you were trying to be a nonprofit fundraiser. And I feel like you were struggling with it. <laughs> it also like what happened after that, where it's like, oh, politics. Yeah, that was right around the same time, honestly. I mean, I stopped. So after Indecision, we did Most Precious Blood. We did uh, so much touring with Most Precious Blood. It was insane. Um, for like six years straight, we were just nonstop. And it just, we were going on, you know, our third tour of New Zealand when, you know, I was just like complaining about how long the flight was. I think that's when I knew I was done. And I decided to, all right, well, what the hell am I going to do now? You know, and I'd always in between tours, you know, when Indecision wasn't making enough money to pay the rent and stuff, which was most of it, you know, in between tours, we used to work on, we used to have temp jobs on Wall Street. I didn't want to go back to that, but I got, you know, I started working in sort of parlayed the, the Wall Street stuff into raising money for a couple of nonprofits. And that, you know, the, the circles, the nonprofit circles are very close to some of the political fundraising circles. And I think that's when I just started thinking more about it. And really, honestly, I mean, it sounds corny, but it was having been away from my neighborhood for so many years, I think absence really made the heart grow fonder. And I wanted to get more involved in my neighborhood. And, you know, I started getting involved with local, you know, like civic groups and stuff and like the community board and that kind of thing. And, you know, I just started thinking more and more about it. Like, well, look, I'm not touring anymore. I may as well, you know, I'm back in where I always lived, where I grew up and I may as well get more involved with the neighborhood. And there was a bunch of us who grew up here who started opening businesses and stuff. So there's like a whole generation of us who are now, in our 40s that just we, we grew up here, caused, caused trouble here, got in a lot of trouble here, but like we're still here and now we're really invested in the neighborhood. And I just was one of those people. So it just started making sense that I wanted to get more involved in, in you know, neighborhood activism stuff and yada, yada, yada. I ended up working for my predecessor and I kind of learned the ropes from there. And then he was termed out. He couldn't run again. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll throw my hat in and, you know, and I'll try to run. And that was really it, you know? So it happened really organically. It was never, um, you know, it's like, I have no business being here. I'm covered in tattoos. I didn't go to the right schools. I'm not a lawyer. I never really cared about politics. I got here because I, I cared enough about it and I wanted to make it, I wanted to make a difference. If you ran against Vinny today, like they turned the terms off, yeah. do you think you'd do better than him? <laughs> I don't know. He was, I mean, he was around a long time. He was definitely in a time when you could get away with not commenting on something that didn't happen within your jurisdiction. You know, that's not the world we're in anymore. And I think that, you know, there's some people that don't like that. They think I'm a shit stirrer because I'll chime in on stuff. And it's like, yeah, but this is the world that we're living in right now. The world is on fire. Do you feel the need to censor yourself at all? I mean, I know the you know, the punk rock ethos is to say whatever's on your mind and, and really kind of go along and speak your truth. But, you know, as a politician, do you ever have to watch what you say on Twitter, for instance? If I were you, I would not tell anybody you were in a band. Well, there you go. The cat's out of the bag. It's interesting because, look, there's been, you know, a lot of people have done articles and stuff about me after I got elected. Like, you know, the punk rock hardcore guy. Now he's you know, he's wearing a suit and tie and he's a lawmaker. And that's great. I play along with that because it's not it's not false. It's true, right? But that's not who, I didn't run as that guy, right? I mean, I didn't knock on people's doors saying, hi, I played CBGBs. I'm the local punk rock guy running for city council. It just so happened that I was a guy who grew up in this neighborhood who kind of took a different path than a lot of my friends. But I ran as the guy who had, who had already been doing the work for the past 10 years or so in the neighborhood. And oh, by the way, I have tattoos and I was, I spent 10 years in a hardcore band. So, you know, that, that wasn't like my, it wasn't like I was hiding it, but that just wasn't my, the, my first 
you know, when, when I knocked on someone's door, it wasn't the first thing I talked about because I wasn't running for that. I was running to be your city council person. I was running to help people with stuff, you know? So it's not very punk rock to be known as the guy who gets the kids off your lawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, you know, things change. But it sounds like it wins you the, the primary. Yeah, I right? think, <laughs> look, I, I never, I've never hid who I am, right? I mean, I wear my heart on my sleeve. It's like who I am. But I think, look, I think coming from the world that we all come from, it definitely gives you a, a sense of fearlessness that it, you can't really put your finger on it. But there's certain rites of passage, I think, that some people feel that to get into politics or to get into any industry or any whatever, that you have to sort of check all the right boxes and stuff. And I think I think having come from this world, you, you just don't worry about, you know, like the, the same way, like when, when I was trying to raise money for, you know, these humanitarian nonprofit groups and I was, you know, taking people out to lunch at the Four Seasons and trying to get them to write a million dollar check to some humanitarian organization. I had no business doing that, like having a power lunch at the fucking four seasons like I, right but but i was there doing it because i was like fuck it like this is it like i gotta do this this is you know i'm doing it for a good a good cause for a you know this guy could write me a, my organization a check for a million dollars like it was nothing i had no business doing that i had no formal training i had none of that stuff so i'd always kind of been that that kind of guy like lock me in the room and, and i'll figure it out you know give me an hour and i'll, I'll learn how to do it and i think that comes from punk rock diy that kind of stuff like you just learn, you just had to figure it out and you didn't ask people permission you know you kind of just or you didn't ask people how you kind of just put it together and I think doing politics was the same thing and maybe you know if I had been more you know mesmerized by the paths that that other politicians had taken maybe I would have been you know intimidated and I, I wouldn't have gone down this path you know but I think having been in bands and having to just make shit up as you go along and having to troubleshoot all these insane scenarios that happen to you as a band on tour. It's an education that you just cannot you cannot replicate and you could barely explain it unless you've been through it. And it just carries with you. I think it makes you a, a better person no matter what industry you're in. But when you're in politics, when your job is to empathize with people and to be able to walk in other people's shoes, I think having having that hardcore punk education, it, it helps, you know? Well, well, when we were marching in the St. Patrick's Day Parade with the city council a couple of years ago. When, you, when I, was I was accosted by a large gentleman. Yeah, that was <laughs> <laughs> yes, it might have been assaulted. You, I was assaulted. You said you said uh, that punk rock and politics have a lot in common. Yeah. So, uh, how do you you know what what do you see about punk rock that is that you know have to do with campaigning? Sure. I mean, look, the same way I stood outside CBGB's with my with my band flyers is the way I stand outside the supermarket with with a palm card saying "Vote for Justin Brandon." It's the same thing. It's 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 self promotion. It's it's you know you don't have a manager, you don't have money to spend on advertising, so you go out there with wheat paste and you put up your flyers and you're you're, you're figuring out any way to get people to come to the show. The same way you're trying to figure out ways to get people to go vote. It makes a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, I, if you sit down and think about it for a couple of seconds. It's it's something very linear there for me. Like it makes a hell of a lot of sense that I had my foundation on on hardcore punk and all this sort of, you know, really crass 
you know, advertising and that kind of stuff. And then being in politics where you're trying to get your message out there and trying to get your name out there and trying to push issues that are important to you. I wasn't the only one that that found this path. You know, there's a bunch of us who came up through the scene and are now involved in politics or policy and that kind of thing. And I come across, meet people all the time who know me from bands or they heard about my story or whatever. And they, you know, they also came up through the scene and stuff. So, you know, I think there's some people, especially if you got involved in in the in the 80s and in the 90s when it was super political, it makes sense that, that, that there's some people that, you know, look, I mean, some people stopped playing in bands and put their guitar in the garage and that was it. Other people, you know, the same way they set up a table at a show where they were talking about animal rights activism or, or whatever it is, they just kept, you know, they kept going with that stuff. And, you know, they still believe all the stuff that they believed when they were 18, but now they've got a chance to actually make policy and make real change happen. You know, that's what I love about it. It's like, you know, you you sort of grow up being the guy outside the building who's who's throwing the proverbial rocks at the building. And then you kind of say, well, maybe if I really want to make change happen, I need to infiltrate. I need to get inside the building and see what goes on inside and see if I can make change happen from the inside. And that's, you know, that's the path that a lot of us took. I never believed in throwing rocks or food. No, but what, what, I, I take a different take on it because, like, sometimes I'm at a protest and I just put on, like, I'm on stage at a hardcore show, you know, and, and I just, and I'm like, if only these ladies, these senior citizens from ARP, if they knew they were into hardcore, they just don't. <laughs> hey, look, there's certainly a huge aspect of theater in politics. Sometimes there's too much theater, you know. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's 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 so much theater that it's it's disingenuous. But there's obviously a level of theater in getting your message out there and showing what's important to you and why it should be important to other people. I mean, absolutely. So, does anyone in your district care about animal rights? Is that, or is that just a personal thing that you do in, as well? Animal rights is one thing that is pretty nonpartisan. Anytime we do, like we just did a bill where we banned the sale of puppies across the state. And that's something that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you're an animal lover, whether you realize it or not, like you care about animal rights. You might not call it animal rights. You might not consider yourself an animal rights activist, but you you care about animals. So that's an issue that can really unite people. I have a technical question on that. If you're from the city council, how did you ban it across the state? Well, we did a rezo because we didn't think the uh, state was going to do it, but, uh, the, but the state just passed it. It just got done last uh, week. Yeah. So you did a rezo that somebody turned into yes, a sir. law. Wait, explain what a rezo is, please. So a rezo is basically the city council, you know, our, our jurisdiction ends in the five boroughs. But if we want to sort of, if we want to show our support for something or our disdain or whatever it is, it's a way for the city council to sort of make a statement. And you do a resolution to either make a statement or usually it's calling on someone to do something. So if you do a resolution, you're calling on Albany to do X, Y, Z or a resolution calling on Washington to do X, Y, Z. So, or you do a resolution in support of a bill on the federal level or the state level. So we, for this thing, we did a resolution in support of a bill in Albany to get this puppy mill thing done. Well, Justin, let me ask you a question. Like when you're in a band and you know, it's a punk band, you say, we're going to write our own songs. We're going to do what we want and nobody's going to tell us what to do. But if you try to write a resolution or a bill, <laughs> you have to get city council yes. legal. And they're going to come back and they're going to change everything you wanted to say in that bill, take the whole guts out of it. And then you're going to have to it's fight. It's like having a, a really that. shitty producer. <laughs> um, changes everything around, you know, it talks about bridges and choruses. And you're like, what the fuck is that? That's a frustrating process because as 
some of the best ideas that, that I've had for legislation come from people walking into your office literally and saying there ought to be a law. I mean, it's, it's, it's that cartoon. It's that real. And, and, and the city council actually has a pretty cool process where you could really, I can send an email to the, to the, the lawyers who draft this stuff, you know, from the back of a taxi with two lines saying, I think we should do X, Y, Z. And, you know, a couple weeks, months, years later, you'll get some legalese back, you know, five pages on how we can get this done. So it's a pretty cool process. It's just, you know, the, the pace, you know, the, the pace is bureaucratic and it's glacial and it, everything takes a lot of time. And that's when people get frustrated, which, you know, goes back to what I was saying before about trying to demystify this stuff a little bit. So you kind of can manage people's expectations, you know. I'm going to stop the conversation for one second and tell you you enjoyed this conversation there's tons more where this came from for only five dollars a month you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month want to help out with some gas money to get us the next show we have merch and more at killedbydesk.com now let's get back to the show well you're going to term out or you're not going to run again at some point to go higher to keep doing it do you have to deal with all of kind of like the old school people that you seem to try to stay away from? No, I mean, you know, when you start running... I'm talking about the Democratic <laughs> machine in New York. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, look, there's, you know, there's certainly a permanent government there between lobbyists and folks who have been, you know, there's people who have worked for, you know, the past six seven mayoral administrations in the city, you know, um, there are people who are just, you know, they, they go with the drapes, you know, they're just part of the barnacle of the city. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that was never, I mean, look, I, I never really had the ambition to, to do what I'm doing now and I'm doing it. So I don't think running for higher office is really something I'm interested in. I really do love the local stuff. And I really do believe in being a steward. Like you do this for a little while and you hand it off to somebody else to do it. You, know, you don't get greedy with it and try to stay here forever. You know, you try to do do the best you can. Leave it a little bit better than you found it. Well, you did just uh, talk shit about South Dakota, so that's going to come back in an attack ad if you ever go national. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how their caucus is there. Big fan of Duluth, by the way. Yeah, Duluth is I good. just throw that in there. <laughs> it's just a crazy time. To be a local elected official in 2020, it, it's just, it's really, really insane. I mean, you, the last the last couple of months dealing with COVID has just been nuts. I mean, you have the executives, you know, the governor, the mayor, the president, whatever, they all get on TV and they make these big announcements and pronouncements and all large print bullshit that there is, there are no, there is no small print, right? But then it's on us, the local guys to kind of figure that out, to distill that information for our constituents. And it's impossible. You know, it's just, it's just an impossible time. And you try to do your best to bring people together. You try to do your best to make people understand that the challenges and the struggles that we're facing now are not unique to our neighborhood. Um, but you know, that's not necessarily what people want to hear. You know, they don't, you know, they don't, they care about their immediate reality. And that's, what's so awesome about and so simple about local government. You know, it's like opening up the hood of an old car. There's, there's three wires and three pieces and that's it. Like if something goes wrong, it's not like having a brand new car. We don't know what to do. And that's, what's great about it. But it's also, it's also a challenge because people sometimes don't understand that, you know, what, what's happening happening here, especially now, is happening all across the country. So so I remember when you were campaigning, there was uh, Justin Brand and his anti-Catholic oh, yeah, video yeah, yeah. ad. Yeah, yeah. I, I assume that didn't... Yeah, I, assume <laughs> that didn't I mean, other than you have like some of the most professional trolls as friends all around the nation, I mean, why do you think that sort of thing in your district 
didn't work out for them. <sighs> well, they, I mean, look, they tried, you know, I mean, that and that that's still their M.O., right? Their M.O. is it's very much the national M.O. Again, that's why this area is is still a microcosm, because they try to paint Democrats as the lawless, you know, anarchists, all this all this bullshit. And, you know, for some people that resonates, you know, and, and if people feel scared and, and they're claiming themselves to be the, the law and order party, you know, people some people react to that. Some people salute that. They were trying to undermine people's faith or trust in me to make it as if I wasn't who I, you know, I claimed to be, as if I was hiding my past playing in bands. And I think the the idea of heavy music being anything but negative and satanic is just completely foreign to them. And they have no interest in learning, right? They're, that's not why they're there. They're just there to be trolls and 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 stoke, you know, bullshit. So them deciding that I, you know, that I was part of um, whatever they were saying was, it was just too easy. Like they couldn't resist it. They couldn't help themselves, you know? So they made up, they made up a fake group to act like it was some concerned religious group that was horrified by my, you know, whatever I did when I was 18. Are um, you going to the bodega and getting your cup of coffee in the morning? <laughs> right, right. And, um, <laughs> you know, it did, whatever. It's just, it's just, nuts. it's just wild. Did you know that coffee is touched by slave labor? What, what, what? What sucks, what sucks about it is that people, you know, this is the kind of stuff that that might turn other people away from getting involved in politics. And it might turn away good people when, when you have to deal with, with that kind of stuff, you know, personal attacks and trolls and people just spreading lies and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, when they have nothing else to go on, that's what they resort to, you know, but there's, a, there's a lot of people who are like, why would you ever want to put up with that? There are some local issues though, where your constituents are split, right? Oh, absolutely. How do you gain their trust? How do you make that work when it's, when it's, when it gets real difficult on the local level? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, you know, especially the moment that we're living in right now, like I was saying before, I mean, this is a total all or nothing moment, right? Um, where it's just completely, everything is a dichotomy. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's really tough, you know, um, you know, we were, you know, obviously, um, Policing is a huge issue right now. And I would say if we got, if 50% of the calls that we got were from folks who believe that we should abolish all law enforcement, the other 50% were from people who would be okay if we had martial law right now. It's nuts. It's fucking crazy, right? And my natural position is sort of being the voice of reason. And just that's just who I am. Um, and trying to not thread that needle, but at least tell people where I stand um, and, and at least tell people you know, why I think certain things are, you know, not as they seem. Look, I think that the media has certainly taken a, a long, long overdue and incredibly complex national reckoning with uh, racial justice and, and police accountability. And they've turned it into this all or nothing war of, of Black Lives Matter versus the police. And, and because of that, there's people who think that just saying Black Lives Matter is the same as saying, I hate the cop. And it's just, it's not true. It's a completely a false choice, but slogans and stuff get thrown around. And, you know, it's, it's easy for people to, to latch on to that kind of stuff. But, you know, I have to be as an elected official, like you've got to be the guy that, that comes out and condemns, you know, violence and, and, and ugly behavior in, you know, in all its manifestations. And that's like, that's one of the things I consider my job. It's like, yeah, I help you get your cat out of a tree and I'll help you f get your pothole filled. But I also have to stand up for what I think we all believe as, as Americans, you know, and an extremely during an extremely, you know, anxious time. And, and with, uh, there's, 
a lot of demagogues that are at work who want us to be divided and are, are trying to exploit what is a very, very combustible time. And it's hard to get people to understand that we really need to be maintaining respect for one another throughout this whole process. But it's tough. You know, look, I think people elected me to solve problems. They didn't elect me to stick my head in the sand and look the other way when things got tough. I think it's easy to be an elected official when everything is great and the money is flowing and, and crime is down and there's no problems. It's great. You know, you cut ribbons and you open up parks and new schools and everyone, you know, they want to buy your coffee at the bagel store. It's fantastic. Right. But that's not that's not the world we're in right now, you know, Um, but, you know, it's it's trying to get people to, you know, not tear each other down, trying to get people to look out for each other. And especially in my area where we've always had a reputation of even though we're in a giant borough where we've always had a reputation for coming together like a small town comes together. But right now it's very tough because people are very divided. And I don't know that there are people who have any interest in not being divided. Well, what, what role do you think the media plays in that? You referenced the media before. I mean, you've seen that probably firsthand from you know your campaign and all of that. I mean, how much do you think the media is playing into that divisiveness? I mean, 100%. I mean, I'm not shirking responsibility. The tabloids, the headlines, um, the news channels that come season to taste, basically, you know, it's easy for them to boil this. Like, we're not, you know, we're not even making it hard for them. Like, we're boiling it down for them and handing them slogans. We're handing them the slogan, defund the NYPD, right? If I talk to you for five minutes about that, you'll understand what that actually means. But if you see it as a headline, defund the NYPD, you think that means that if I support defunding the NYPD, that mm-hmm. must mean that I think that we should just have anarchy and we should just tell all the cops to go home. Obviously, that's not what I think. But, you know, I don't have five minutes with every person to explain to them what this stuff means. And it's easier if they're already thinking a certain way. This just further, you know, confirms their bias or what they already believe. And that's that's when it gets dangerous because um, there's a divisiveness there that you can't, you can't diffuse. It's really tough because you lose people before you even get out of the gate, before you can even explain to them where you you stand, you know, I mean, I have, you know, the, the congressman in my, wouldn't it be easier to say what you mean in the first place? Of course, but I do, but I'm saying it, it doesn't matter. Like we're in a point right now where if a Democrat says something, because I'm a Democrat, there are people that just assume that I must also believe whatever that person said. It doesn't matter what it That's is. crazy. In New York City, the Democrats are the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we are, right? We have a party, you know, it's it's a very diverse and colorful party, and there's people on all sides of the spectrum. But if, if someone says something and they're a Democrat, they assume that every morning at 5 a.m. I get talking points in my email that everyone from every Democrat in the city has to talk about the same stuff. And people truly believe this stuff. People who think that, you know, I'm funded by George Soros. Well, that's like the whole Donald Trump Jr. tweet. I mean, it, it was just because you, you spoke to someone once through Twitter, you must be intimately related to them and, and you know, be behind all of their actions. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's completely insane. And there are certain people where that dog whistle kind of stuff works. And there's nothing I can do to overcome that, you know, and I just, I can't waste time on it. Speaking about dog whistles, I mean, I, as you know, I used to work with brides and bar mitzvah moms all day. <laughs> what, what are the kinds of, you know, think not pothole things, requests that come in that would just blow people's minds as far as like those locals, that woman that comes in every week with the same issue? Like what, what are those things? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Well, you know what? It's, 
I mean, everything is relative, right? I mean, and this is what I try to explain to folks sometimes. Like, the, you know, there's a person who thinks that someone blocking their driveway and they can't get their Maserati out of the driveway is like, that's the end of the world for them, right? And good luck explaining to them that it's not, right? Because that's, you know, there's a level of privilege there that's that's hard to get past. Um, you know, and, and then you have people who come in with the super, super local stuff. But then, you know, what keeps me up at night is, the, is thinking about the family that lives above the bodega who doesn't know where their next meal is coming coming from. And I hope they can I hope they know they can reach out to me too. You know, I don't only want to hear from the guy whose driveway is blocked, you know? So it's it's also getting getting my my name out there, getting my message out there, making sure that people know that they can reach out to me with with whatever problem they might have, like big or small. Past couple of months because it's been everything through the eyes of COVID has been tough. I mean, it's been really really, you know, intense stuff, you know, people fearing eviction and people not knowing where they're going to get the next meal, people not knowing how they're going to pay their rent, losing their job, trying to connect people with unemployment. You know, just really, really dire. I want to hear a funny story. No, I don't no, want you to bum I'm everyone gonna, out. I'm going to get to it. So, <laughs> but then, then I started saying, okay, maybe we're getting back to reality because like, I got an email from a woman complaining that someone was playing a flute outside her house at night and you know she wants me to do something about it. And then I got, I got another email from a person who sent me like a nine gigabyte picture. So she wanted to show me some garbage that she saw on the street and it was like literally a picture of a bottle cap <laughs> like one lone bottle cap like on the sidewalk like okay what would you like me to do with this so you know so it's all stuff like that it's, it's sometimes it's comical you know but was it white claw <laughs> no no like a gatorade then i can understand <laughs> i think it was in- you don't get any uh emails about chemtrails or 5g and oh absolutely i get those too yeah 5g cause covid we got those for a while well, you don't need 5G. Just rip those towers down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we get those too. We get those too. No offense, Charlie. Yeah, I'm getting pissed. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting like that other guy, that guy from the Big Bang Theory. We'll talk about him tomorrow. <laughs> so, Justin. So, wait. So I want to talk about straight edge. Okay. I want to talk about straight edge. <laughs> All right. Let me, you know, you made a point about straight edge. You said that. You used to have to drink a beer with a politician for them to get elected. So now you're saying straight edge people can run for office? <laughs> no, I think I said sometimes the bar for saying, you know, which which guy am I going to vote for? Which candidate am I going to vote for? Used to be, well, which one would I rather have a beer with? Well, I sure as hell wouldn't want to have a beer with Ray Kaplan. <laughs> <laughs> Shirley Temple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, what was the question? I was going to go about straight edge. Is straight edge just control issues? <laughs> I think it definitely helped me. I'm not straight edge anymore. I think it definitely helped me through my teenage formative. Two out of three ain't bad. It definitely helped me through my teenage formative years. I think it helped me maybe avoid making some bad decisions. I kind of became straight edge before I knew what straight edge was. I think I was never really drawn to getting drunk and, and that kind of stuff. It just was was never really my speed. And then once I realized that there were people who were sort of in this counterculture of like, well, yeah, everyone's drinking, but we're not. And we're not, you know, and but, but we're also going to take it a step further and we're going to be proud of it. We're not going to hide the fact that we don't drink and we don't do what everyone else is doing. You know, there was, there was, I was drawn to that. There was some camaraderie there, I guess, but I was never like fanatic about it. But you didn't, you didn't like Chain of Strength, right? <laughs> they did that one good song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so hold on. So I saw last year, I forgot what paper it was, they did kind of like ranking of the city council. 
My, just so you know, my councilman was number 47 out of 50. Who's your councilman? Uh, Gonash. Oh, Mark Jonai. 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 I can't yeah. even say his name. Jonai. But but yeah, so I mean, how do you measure your success here? You that came was in, rigged. You came in right in the middle. Like, what do you think about that? And how do you measure your success? Well, I mean, the district that the district that I have is it's it's very, you know, it's it's intense, right? Like I there's elected officials who hang out only at city hall and there's elected officials who like to stay in their district. And I'm, I'm one of the guys that likes to stay in his district because that's really where the action happens. You know, city hall, like, look, you have to balance the fact that I was elected to represent 170, 180,000 people in the three or four neighborhoods that I represent. And that's my main job, but I'm also one of 51 people who are also in charge of, you know, being the legislative body for the entire city of New York, all 8.5 million people. So you have to always balance that, you know, and you have to, you know, see everything through the lens of what's going to be best for those who elected you because people in Queens didn't elect me, right? The people in my district elected me. So what do you do after this? If you term out or, or you lose or you you decide not to run again, what's the, what's the next step for you? Have you even thought about that or are you just kind of focused on what's going on now? Yeah, I haven't really thought about it. I haven't thought about it. I think it would be fun to be in a position where I can just yell about how messed up stuff is without anyone actually thinking I, I actually have anything, I have to do something about it. You'd rather, you'd rather yell at City Hall than be in it? Sometimes. It's a lot of fun, literally. Take it from Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Just yell, at, you yell about how fucked up stuff is and no one expects you to actually do anything about it. Sometimes cars may or may not hit you. We're not sure about that, but... Uh... <laughs> do, a, do a couple of frat falls and you're all set. I have a picture from the New York Post has a picture of that car hitting my knee. Reliable news source, the New York Post. <laughs> <laughs> it's a picture. I saw the picture on the front of the guy's camera. Yeah, Not that I didn't feel the car hit my leg. Wait, you were on the cover of the Daily News, though. So in the Post, they actually covered your side of the story? No, they have it. The Post was there. The Post took up the, 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 video, the videos from the side. The videos from the grassy knoll, I think. <laughs> the video the video the video the lady fire Carranza. Charlie, which media source took issue with the fit of your t-shirt? <laughs> the New Daily News. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I was reported to New York Times Security, by the way. But that was a separate protest. I believe Charlie, you told me your entire college experience, you just read the Daily News in class. That was day. high school. That was high, high school? school. Okay. I, I will not read the Daily News anymore. <laughs> I also think that you should you should try and convince other uh, hardcore and punk mainstays to run. I feel like Jimmy G could really represent Astoria really well. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's one of my questions, though. Like, who else in the punk scene should run? Like, who are you going to encourage? Who are you going to endorse? There's a woman who just won in North Brooklyn, Emily Gallagher, who one of her campaign photos was her wearing a black flag shirt. And she's legit. She, like, didn't just buy it at Hot Topic. Like, she's legit. I'm telling you. I mean, who, who do you think who could hack it, though? Who could hack it? Who could hack it? Jimmy G could do it. As you can tell by this song, A Story of Queen's <laughs> Rules. I think he could do it. I think any of the old guys who had the nicknames would be great. You know, Vinny Stigma. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, look, I, I think certainly in the local level, it's, you know, it's a place where you can you can get stuff done. In the, in the what about Andrew Scum? You think Andrew Scum could run? <laughs> I think Johnny Stiff's got a shot. <laughs> I bought I bought that Johnny Stiff t-shirt. I'm already campaigning for him. <laughs> Stiff 2020. All right. So, Justin, what do you see as your legacy, right? When you leave the office, are people going to remember who you are and what are they going to remember you for? They're not going to remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> I have no delusions that I'm going to be, you know, that someone's going to write a book about me. You know, I, I think they're going to remember that that I'm a kid who grew up in this in my neighborhood and I ended up representing it. And I tried to do the best that I could in sort of a very transitional time 
for the neighborhood, you know, when you're having a real struggle between new and old, you know, and trying your best to bridge those fences and make everyone feel welcome. But, you know, certainly. Sounds like, sounds like an aspiring <laughs> to be Jimmy Carter. Don't let Charlie work for you. <laughs> it's just a crazy time it's a crazy time to be at the local level when when so much there's just so much disorder at the national level here's a quick uh, i don't don't know if any of these people who care would still be alive but out of your older constituents one of the things that always surprised me about bay ridge is i found out as a big baseball fan almost all the brooklyn dodgers lived in bay ridge yeah where duke snyder lived is like five seconds from where i live there's no signs or anything is there i mean there's nothing there's nothing marking that i mean i think that's that can make it a pretty big stop on baseball fans tours because i know there's a lot of baseball fans that'll go to a city or, or you know travel around and look for those kind of things and I, I know that is a cool I, I don't know why we've never named anything after any of the Brooklyn Dodgers it's a good I think Carl Erskine lived right next to Duke Snyder Pee Wee Reese lived there too um, I mean it's it's crazy yeah it's all right in this like where I live it's all within maybe what, what about Ralph Cramden's building is that in your district <laughs> I don't think so that's Bensonhurst what about where George Vulture eat those two slices of pizza yeah that's Bayridge that's Bayridge too yep his house Martin Payne yep that's all. Also you good. have to go there and eat two slices of pizza like that when you campaign. No one ever ate pizza like that except in that movie. No one ever did. <laughs> yeah, but, but, Justin, I feel like you should make we make your next campaign video. I think you, you got to try that out. That. Uh, maybe I I'll do a double great. double square. And then yeah, and then do the White Castle no, scene too. No better than the way De Blasio <laughs> eats the pizza. Oh, yeah. the front, <laughs> that's <laughs> don't you talk slow. <laughs> <laughs> You had to reject de Blasio's endorsement, right? Go ahead. Wait, 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 wait. I got, I got a question. I got a question. I got a... You're a big animal rights guy, right? Oh, my God. I know where this is what going. What about that freaking groundhog? <laughs> that de Blasio threw that thing on the floor. <laughs> the groundhog? He certainly... He didn't know what he was doing with that poor groundhog. <laughs> the groundhog. De Blasio, he threw that groundhog on the floor. He dropped it. He It died, though, right? Four more years of karma. It was like a football. It's it, like, it, it, the groundhog it's like a touchdown. Died. They don't... They, they couldn't confirm if it, he spiked. It. They, he had spiked the groundhog. They couldn't confirm if he died because of that fall or from a previous condition. Well, I, I think I think you should you should hold a groundhog in your next campaign video and show people how to hold it right. I'll have the groundhog and the Pee Wee Reese Street. Yes, the exactly. There you go. You win. There's there's your real action the right there. The paint can, paint can in one hand, groundhog in another hand. And a double slice, slice of pizza. In get it? Yeah. Double. Get a tiny Brooklyn Dodgers hat to put on the groundhog. Oh, you guys are good. <laughs> We can work for you. I think we could. I think we could come like up little, with some the of your little helmets. Uh, the little helmets. Yeah, some of your campaign ideas. You put the ice cream. Oh, yeah, in. little ice cream helmets. Are perfect. Yeah, that would also help if you happen <laughs> to drop him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we're wrapping this up. That's it. Do you have anything to plug, Justin? Do you have anything to promote? No. <laughs> <laughs> What about visit Bay Ridge? Like, what, what oh, about yeah. you know get I people mean, to, get people to go visit? You know, yeah, no one can leave my the city. District, I have one of the best districts uh, in the city. It's like a small town in a big city. Beautiful parks, great schools, beautiful waterfront, tons of Zagat and Michelin rated restaurants. It's a great neighborhood. It's a great community here. My friend Eric lived in Bay Ridge. He loved it, but he said the reason he had to leave was because whenever he try and take girls home, they'd fall asleep before they got back to Bay Ridge. <laughs> The R train is our gentrification kryptonite because no one wants to deal with the R train, so they don't they don't move out of here. So wait, if you fall asleep on the R train going towards Bay Ridge and you miss the end and you start going back, where do you end up on the other end of the line? Astoria, Queens, baby. Oh, there you go. That's where you got to move. To Ditmars? <laughs> <laughs> the, end, the end train goes to Astoria, not the R anymore. No, the R goes, they changed it. Yeah, the R goes. They changed it yeah. back again? Yeah. When? Forever. The R goes. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here and your mom is calling jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com.